Well, my thanks to Nathan and Herb and Tim for uh, letting me join them in this pastoral summer sermon series uh, this summer. I thought I probably should preach at least once this summer. They're very gracious in that. Join me in uh, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, as we do continue uh, to look at the theme that we have, not only for this year, but the summer sermon series, and that theme is our identity in Christ, our identity in Christ. And this morning, we have the opportunity to look at that most precious reality that we've just sung about, that most precious reality in the Christian faith, the most relational, the most personal identity we have in Jesus, and that is our identity as an adopted child of our Savior. One spiritual orphans in a satanic family with no future and no hope, we are now, because of our union with Christ, because of our connection to Him through faith alone, our connection to the eternal Son of God's eternal love, because of that connection, we now share in His Sonship. And we are thus recipients of an eternal love. We are objects of a divine affection. We are heirs of a future hope. The words of one author, as an adopted child of God, we enjoy the full bounty and benefits of the panoply of spiritual blessings attained by our elder brother. God is now not our judge. No, he is our heavenly father who, because of his great love, fatherly love for us, he has granted access to him now. He has given admission into his home now. He has bestowed on us the right to his family name. This is what is behind John's amazement in 1 John 3. John writes this, see how great, John's trying to grasp here for words. See how great, see just how deep. Begin to feel just how astonishing and how lavish and how otherworldly, that's what the word great means, otherworldly. This is an alien love. This is a divine love, this great love. Here's adoption. The Father has bestowed on us. This is love that supersedes any love that we can imagine. And what is the extent that the Father loves us? Yes, he will send his son, Christ. But notice the extent of this love that we would be called what? Children of God will be in his family. Again, once a child, a child of Satan, we are now a child of God. Once a child of wrath, we are now child of, a child of blessing. To which John adds, and such we are. That's us. That's our identity. This is praise. That's why John can call us in verse 2, beloved. Beloved. 
beloved by God. Beloved by God because Christ loves his son. And thus we're attached to his son, united to Christ. And so the father's love overflows from his love to his son, to his love to his children. We are now beloved by God. Why? Because now we are children of God. This is the warm, the caring, the intimate, relational side of our salvation. And you can see just how warm, how intimate this idea of adoption is when we compare this to the other blessings, facets of salvation. Let's take justification. Justification. Nathan preached on this a few weeks ago. In justification, God is a pardoning judge. He removes our punishment and he declares us righteous. In redemption, God is a wealthy master. He purchases a hopeless slave. In reconciliation, God is a military general who brings us into his own country. In regeneration, God is a surgeon and he performs heart replacement surgery on us. All of those are glorious blessings of our salvation. All of those are needed acts by God. But if that is where God's grace ended, without the blessing of adoption, all of those acts could remain cold, judicial, displaced. But that is not where God's grace ends. The judge doesn't just pardon us. No, he also brings us into his family. The wealthy master doesn't just purchase us. He gives us his lineage. The military general does not only bring us to his country, he makes us heirs of his kingdom. The surgeon doesn't just perform surgery, he takes us home after the surgery is done. So why J.I. Packer writes this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And then he adds, this may cause raising of eyebrows. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, that's primary primary. It's fundamental. Primary and fundamental blessings of the gospel. That's not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgments. So we need forgiveness of our sins more than anything else in the world. But, but, This is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. 
conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Adoption into God's family is the great promise, the highest blessing of Christ's gospel. John 1.12, But as many as received him through faith... To them, speaking of God the Father, to them, he gave the right to be what? Children of God, the legal authority. John 16, the Father himself, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. The Father loves you because you're attached to me, Jesus says. His love for me now overflows to his love in his love for you. So why Jesus could tell Martha, go to my brethren. It's a family idea, adoption. Go to my brethren. Christ is our elder brother. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father, but then he adds this phrase, and your father. It's an amazing statement. Because if you follow John's gospel, what do you find? Christ calls himself God's son, unique son. But now he broadens this out. He brings us into that relationship. My father is also your father. My God is your God. No wonder Jesus says, don't keep it quiet. Go tell the brethren, encourage them. This is what the promised, this is what the Old Testament promised, Psalm 22. The Messiah speaking says this, I will tell of your name, the name of God, I will tell of your name to my brethren, my family. Who is the Messiah? He is king. He's also our brother. Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. The creator is now our father, our savior is now our brother. This is why Packer continues. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, listen, Father is the Christian name for God. How do you relate to God? It's a question. How do you relate to him? Do you come to him in prayer as a defendant is approaching a judge? 
pleading your case, hoping he will hear you, maybe call you to the bench to talk? Do you obey God as if he's a taskmaster who needs to be appeased? Do you worship him as one who is so transcendent that he remains distant and standoffish? Or do you approach him as a beloved child? As a child approaches a welcoming, patient, kind, concerned, compassionate, caring, loving father. If you have come to Christ in saving faith, you have been united to God's beloved son in whom the father finds his greatest pleasure. And because of that union, you are showered with the father's love every single day. And it is an eternal love. In love, Ephesians says, he predestined us to adoption. In love. This is an infinite love that overflows from his love for his own son, Christ. So this is our identity. We are a child of God, another author. This is the apex of grace. It staggers the imagination. So that is what we're going to explore this morning, our identity as God's beloved child. I trust we will be staggered by this. We'll look at it in two ways. The first way, we'll look at the privileges of our adoption, the privileges. And then the second way, and I'm just going to list these at the end, we'll look at the responsibilities of our adoption. First, privileges, and then the responsibilities. All right, Romans chapter 8, focusing here on the privileges of our Adoption. There are four of them. Let's read the text. Start in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, should be the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Four privileges begin with privilege number one. We have been given our Father's spirit. Here is the first privilege of our adoption, we have been given our Father's Spirit. You see the Spirit repeated at least three times in these four verses. This is the highest of blessings that God could grant to us. He gives us Himself. He gives us His Spirit. Spirit to reside in us, to seal us, to sanctify us. We'll see in just a little bit. He gives us a spirit to mold us into the image of his son and our brother. Now, this fits the concept of a Roman family very well. Paul is at least, in part, drawing off of this idea of adoption, Roman adoption, at least in part. It's bigger than that. But a wealthy Roman family would often have a male slave who would act as a chaperone for their children when the parents aren't around. 
This would be someone who would protect the child and teach the child and then lead the child where they need to go. Well, in the same way, we have been given our father's chaperone. But we're not given a slave, we're given his spirit. The spirit's presence, the spirit's seal, being that mark that we are truly a member of God's family. And it is the giving of his spirit to us that showcases just how much God loves us as a father would love a child. So think of Jesus' words. It's from Luke 11. He says this, Now suppose one of you, one of your fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. You will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? That's just absurd. Who would do that? What father would do that? That's mockery. That's hate. That's not love. Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a poisonous scorpion. Don't you wish you lived back in those days, parents? All the child asks for is a fish and an egg. A little bit easier. Anyway, ask for an egg. He's not going to give him a, him a poisonous scorpion. Will he? will he? Again, absurd. Love gives what is best. Love overflows. Well, here's the application then. Verse 13. If you then, being evil, fallen, sinful... If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? I love the how much more applications. How much more? Let's take this to another level. Contrast this to the fallen fathers. How much more will your heavenly father, adoption, your heavenly father who's perfect and merciful and gracious and righteous, caring, how much more will your heavenly father give you what? Better, give you who? His spirit. How much more will he give you his spirit? The spirit of God is the highest blessing of adoption. It's the highest gift the father can give to us. Why? Because it is through the Spirit that we are united to the Son, the Son of God's love. This is intimacy unmatched. So united are we to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Notice the end of verse 15. Because we have received a spirit of adoption, again, that should read the spirit of adoption. This is the Holy Spirit. Some theologians say this is the premier title of the Spirit, the Spirit of adoption. Because the Father has granted us the gift of His Spirit, notice we now have the privilege to cry out what? Abba. Abba. It's an Aramaic word. It's a great picture. It's often used by a small child when addressing his father. Papa. Abba. It's a title that emphasizes the tenderness of a father's heart. It's a title that emphasizes the openness of a father's ear to his child's words and requests and concerns. It's a word that indicates nearness, closeness, closeness intimacy. 
to which Paul then adds the Greek word father, Abba, father again. God is no longer our judge. He is our caring father who calls us to come to him as a small, tender, needing child. Now the question I ask as I read the end of verse 15, why does Paul include these two words, Abba, Father? Why not just say Abba or why not just say Father? Why connect them? Well, it's because Paul is showing just how united to Christ we are through the Spirit, how genuine our sonship really is, how special it is. Because there are only three places this phrase, Abba, Father, is used in the New Testament, only three places. Two of them are in Paul's letters here and then in Galatians. But this is not the first time this phrase is used. You know where the first time this phrase is used. It's used by who? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is at his weakest, when he was at his most vulnerable, when the horror of the cross becomes most potent for him, that is when Jesus prays, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you. Because I'm your son and you're my father. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your love. I'm going to trust your goodness. I'm going to believe that you always have what is best in mind. And thus, not what I will. But your will be done. What you will. This is so instructive. At Jesus' most desperate time of need and weakness, Jesus places his future not in God as judge and not in God as sovereign and not in God as creator. No, he places his future in God as his father. In Gethsemane, Jesus finds comfort in his sonship, the very tenderness and goodness and care and eternal love his father has for him. Paul's quoting Jesus here. That's the point. He's quoting Jesus. And the application is we, as adopted children of God, we have that same privilege through that same spirit. As adopted children, we too can pray those same words Jesus prayed as, prayed as children of God. We can, like Christ did, we can rest upon our sonship, adopted sonship at the most desperate of times. That's why Paul uses that word cry here. We cry out, Abba, Father, Kradzo. It's a cry of emotion. Emotional burst from the soul. There's joy here. There's assurance. There's awe. There's comfort. We can cry out because of the promise that the Father will always receive us with the same tenderness, with the same compassion and love he has for his unique eternal son. Because we're in him. 
the greatest privilege of our sonship in Jesus is that we have been given the Father's adopting spirit. Everything else in the passage flows from the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice privilege number two. Privilege number two, as children of God, we are freed from all fear. We are freed from all fear. Notice the beginning of verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption. So the spirit of adoption is contrasted with the spirit of fear. Fear of what? Well, fear of what Paul has warned about up to this point in this letter. Fear of God's wrath because of our sin. Paul chronicles that in Romans 1. Fear of eternal death and coming judgment. Paul promises that in Romans 3. Fear of eternal separation from God. Fear of approaching holy God, knowing full well we fall short of his glory. That is fear every unbeliever, every child of Satan should have. But for those who are united to the beloved son, for those who are a member of God's family, we have been granted not the spirit of fear. We've been given the spirit of adoption. All fear is gone. Security is granted. Listen to some of these promises throughout the New Testament that is given to every believer, but I want you to see the connection here. The promise is given based upon our adoption into God's family. Promise number one, we need not fear being cast away from the Lord's presence. We need not fear being cast away from the Lord's presence. Based upon adoption, Luke 12, do not be afraid, Jesus says, why? For your father, sonship is the idea. Your father has chosen gladly, it's not begrudgingly, gladly to give you the kingdom. It's ours, it's our future, it's our hope. Listen to promise number two, we need not fear the Lord withholding his goodness from us ever, ever. Matthew 6, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father, adoption, your heavenly father, he feeds them. Are you as his children, are you not worth much more than they? And again, this can be rooted in the idea of adoption. Often the adopted child was loved even more than the biological child in that day. It was the choice the, the family made, bring them into the family. If God, verse 30, if God, your father, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You're his child. He always gives you what is best. He always gives you what is best. Promise number three. We need not fear ever being punished for our sins. 
We need not fear ever being punished for our sins. This is Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, what? Loves. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's not punishment, it's discipline. It's to train us in a greater godliness. This is an act of love, of goodness. It's because we're in his family that the writer adds that he will scourge us. It will hurt, yes, but it's not punitive. It's to mold us, to train us. Every son whom he receives, that's the discipline he will give. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. But if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 10, he disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us for our good. It is an act of love. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Never will the Lord punish us for sin. Discipline, yes, not punishment. And it is always for our good Always for our good, so that we'll be molded into the image of our elder brother. There's many more promises that can be given. Let me give you one more promise number four here. Because we are God's children, we never need to fear approaching God in prayer. We never need to fear approaching God in prayer. As Paul, that was Jesus' command pray, pray in this way, our who? Father, our Father who is in heaven. And so when you're tempted to withdraw from God because of sin, remember his fatherly care of you and approach him in confession. He will not turn you away. Abba, Father. When you're tempted to become too busy to pray, remember his welcoming presence. When anxiety suffocates prayer in your life, remember his fatherly protection. When you're too tired to pray, remember his life-giving goodness. All fear is gone. From any dread we might have for the future to the concerns of the immediate, the spirit of fear has been replaced with the Holy Spirit of adoption. It's privilege number two. Let's look at privilege number three. Privilege number three, as children of God, we are granted assurance of our salvation through the Spirit's sanctification. We are granted assurance of our salvation through the Spirit's sanctification. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is assurance. Assurance of salvation is a spirit's work. And how does the spirit of adoption testify to our sonship, confirm our adoption? It's through his sanctification of us, his miraculous work of changing us into the image of our elder brother. That's the spirit's testimony. We see that. Look at verse 13. 
Verse 13, if by the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, that's what Tim talked about last week, the Spirit enlivens within you the desire for holiness, righteousness, obedience. That's the Spirit's work. If that's taking place and you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Your future is secure. God grants us the spirit of adoption and through that spirit we are given a greater desire for holiness. A fuller obedience to Christ. That's the spirit's assurance. We're given the family name we then begin to look like the family. That's what verse 14 says. For all who are being led by the spirit. Present passive verb. Meaning you willingly are led by the Spirit. It's your way of life, present tense. You willingly submit yourself to the Spirit and His Word. You willingly desire the fruit of the Spirit as the flavor of your life. If you're being led by the Spirit, then you are the sons of God. That's the assurance. That's the Spirit's testimony. Again, the Father loves us to the point where he will grant us his spirit to bring us sanctification. And thus assurance, assurance that we are indeed his children. Let's look at the fourth privilege here. Fourth privilege. As a child of God, we are promised an eternal hope. An eternal hope, a future inheritance. The wonderful as all these privileges are, they are still incomplete. Incomplete. A better privilege awaits. Verse 17. And if children were heirs also. This moves our spiritual adoption we experience now into our life to come in glory. Continue verse 17. We are heirs of God. That is to say, so full, so full is our adoption into God's family, we will inherit everything God has promised us. Everything. We're heirs of God. But then amazingly, Paul adds, we are also fellow heirs with who? With Christ. We're, we're fellow heirs with Christ. So close is our union with Christ, so full is our adoption that whatever belongs to Christ, whatever has been achieved by Christ, whatever will be enjoyed by Christ will one day belong to us and be given to us and be enjoyed by us. That's amazing. His inheritance will be our inheritance. His kingdom will be our kingdom. His joy will be our joy. His riches will be our riches. And so glorious is this promise. This is how the Bible ends. Revelation 21. Here's the promise. He who overcomes this world through faith in Christ, he who overcomes will inherit these things. What things? The new heavens, the new earth, and I will be his God and he will be my what? My son. 
will be my son. The privileges of our sonship, our adoption, continue for all of eternity. Tim is going to build on this next week, looking at our identity as fellow heirs of Christ. But for now, with these privileges, let me just leave this inheritance idea with the words of one pastor. He writes this, Everything that Christ will receive by divine right as the natural Son of God, we will receive by divine grace as adoptive children of God. Because Christ is God's Son, all that the Father has belongs to Him. And because we are in Christ, everything that is Christ is ours. It's the overflow on us of God's love for Jesus. And part of this inheritance is we will be like him in every way. We will be like our elder brother in every way, except obviously we're not deity. We'll be like him in every way. Drop down to the end of verse 17. We will be glorified with him. We will be glorified with him. That's the promise because of what Paul says in verse 17 there. Because we're united to Christ, yes, there are privileges, but there will be suffering. But rest assured, your father loves you to the degree that the promise, we will be like our elder brother. We will be sustained even through suffering. This is the future grace of our adoption from being a child of Satan to being a joint heir with Christ and one day being conformed as much as is possible for the creature to his glory. Look at verse 23. It's no wonder Paul adds this at the very end. As adopted children, we wait eagerly for our adoption, the consummation of it. We should be waiting eagerly, not satisfied right now. The better is coming. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption, transformation, glorification of our body when we will finally be made like our elder brother. Now, those are the privileges. There are many more. Those are just the privileges from verses 14 through 17 here in Romans 8. But you have adoption throughout the New Testament, privilege upon privilege. Let me just conclude. I just want to list this for you. It's the responsibilities of our adoption. By the way, these are in the bulletin in the application section. There's always an application section in the bulletin. They are there. And so I'm just going to list these, but you can work your way through these. There are responsibilities that we have as being adopted children of God. With the family name comes family responsibilities. I was going to list out all the responsibilities of the royal family in England. They're weird, weird responsibilities. These aren't super weird. There are how many of them here? Five. Just going to list them for you. You can look at them on your own. Because you are a child of God, you are to live your life as a life of praise. A life of praise. It's First John 3. Staggering thought. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. It's a life of praise. Number two, because you are a child of God, you must trust the goodness of your Father in all things. Trust the goodness of your Father in all things. Listen to Philippians 2. Do you ever read some of those passages in Scripture and you're like, you know, Paul, why did you have to write that? 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't complain about God's providence. That's the point. Don't question his sovereignty. Remember his fatherly care of you. This is from his good hand. Instead of grumbling or disputing, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be children of God. This command is based upon our adoption, our sonship. Don't grumble, don't dispute, prove that you're children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Trust the goodness of your Father in all things. Number three, because you're a child of God, you must pursue the righteousness of God. You must pursue the righteousness of God. We've already seen that in Romans 8. We are made, we are made to look like our elder brother. Pursue righteousness, Christ-likeness. In the Old Testament, it was godliness was the idea. In the New Testament, it's Christ-likeness. Pursue that. Number four. Because you are a child of God, you must love the brethren. You must love the brethren. Our adoption does not affect only our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with every believer. We are the family of God. We're not just individual Christians. What's amazing is so often we come to the scriptures and we think in individual terms, well, this book is written just for me. No, there are only three books in the Bible that are written to individuals. Everything else Talking New Testament, every other book is written to the group, the family of God. We are brothers and sisters united together in Christ. Love one another, care for one another. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What's the mark, John? How is this obvious? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, that's pursuing righteousness. But then this note, nor the one who does not love his brother or members of the family of God love one another, care for one another. And then number five. Number five, because you are a child of God, you must maintain an evangelistic testimony with the world. We do not withdraw from the world. Again, back to what Paul said. Yes, there will be suffering that we will incur. It's true. A lot of that suffering is from the world. But we don't withdraw from the world, no. Matthew 5, we let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify who? Our Father. Our Father who's in heaven. Our adoption to God's family must be seen, it must be heard, it must be lived so that children of Satan will one day become adopted children of God. Do you understand why Packer writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being a child of God. And having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. 
May we embrace our identity as a child of God. May we be staggered by it. May we bask in all of its privileges. But must, we must also take to heart all of those expectations, those responsibilities. Father, you have been gracious to us. Spirit of grace has been poured out upon us. Lord, we praise you for your love, that eternal love that predestines us to adoption into your family. We praise you for that infinite love that overflows from Christ unto us. We thank you for that love that shows itself in a tenderness and a care and a concern for your people. Lord, may we be staggered by this. May contemplating and being humbled by your love raise our love for you. And thus may we live for you. Love you to the point of obedience knowing you are indeed Abba, Father, not based upon who we are, but based upon who we are in Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.